Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I don't need anybody's help. I can do this all on my own. And I think once I realized that you can go further together and faster. Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Real Estate Lab podcast. In this lab, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the most brilliant minds in real estate investing, then turn their wisdom into practical advice and knowledge that we can use to boost our income. And now, let's turn it over to our host, V. It's a good day to be alive and to invest in real estate. Welcome to the show. My name is V. Koo, and you are listening to the Real Estate Lab podcast. If you are a first-time listener, welcome to the show. And if you are a return listener, thank you so much for your support. Our guest today is Nicholas Amaluxens. Nick has been investing in real estate since 2015 in Austin, Texas. Originally from Denver, Colorado, he has moved to Austin back in 2014 with his wife, Sarah. For 11 years, he was the master technician for VW and Audi before meeting his investing partner, Mark, and joining Quantum Capital. Now, his business partner, Mark, is actually an interesting character. He is one of the writers for a very famous American sitcom that you might have heard of, Family Guys. Currently, Nick's focuses on asset management, acquisition, and investor relation for Quantum Capital, both in Austin and in Los Angeles. To contact Nick, you can send him an email at nick at quantumcapitalinc.com. You can find him on Facebook, Nicholas Amaluxens, and you can also find him on LinkedIn. Don't worry, you do not have to take notes of the contact information. It will be available in the show notes section. Today, Nick and I will discuss how he did his first deal and how he made the shift from working as a master technician for Audi and VW to a full-time syndicator. Before we get rolling on the show, I would like to personally invite you to our free Facebook community. Just head on over to www.eastwestventures.co slash AIMS to join. All right, if you haven't done so yet, I would encourage you to go over to iTunes and hit that subscribe button. You do not want to miss a future episode of the Real Estate Lab podcast. Okay, so by hitting that button, It will make sure that you get the latest drop of the podcast the moment I upload it. Also, while you're there, give me a five-star rating and leave a review. I would love to hear from you about what you think about the show. If you want to talk to me personally, go ahead and schedule a call. Go to www.callwithv.com. That's V with two E's. All right, enough of that. Let's get on to my conversation with Nicholas Amaluxens. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Lab Podcast. We have Nick here today. It's an honor to have you here on the call with us, Nick. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Now, Nick, so let's take a step back here so that our audience know where you're from and so they can have an idea of you know how you get to this point where you're at in life. Can you think back uh, to your childhood and say, you're eight years old. What was it like growing up in your household? Yeah, well, I grew up in Denver, Colorado. At the time, it was uh, 
I have one sibling, well, two siblings, my sister and my brother. And they were always the, the smart ones. They did, they're the ones who did well in school. So growing up, I knew I didn't want to follow a traditional path. Uh, and I kind of fought against that, you know, as much as I could, even, you know, through high school into college, uh, from college, I actually, I dropped out of traditional college and went on to, I was a, a Volkswagen technician for about 11 years before starting in real estate. And that's kind of how I got, how I got here, but yeah. So you, at a, as a young age, you didn't want to go to traditional school and you went to a vocational school and became a tech in the car auto industry. Yeah, I knew kind of early on. I mean, even from high school, you know, we had to do, I had a, I remember I had a high school business class and one of the, one of the things that we had to do was do business plans. And even back then my business plan was, was real estate. So I knew eventually I wanted to end up in real estate. I just, you know, never really took the leap. And then one day I uh, just decided, you know, why am I, why am I not doing this? So interesting. You're, so in that class, your business plans was about real estate. What inspired you? What gave you that idea? You know, I don't really know. Honestly, I remember thinking I'm going to date myself. It was 2008 and it was my senior year. And, uh, I just thought like, Oh, I'm going to go flip houses. Like that'll be what I do when I get out of high school. And I, I didn't follow through on it, but I remember that's, that's where it all started. I don't, I don't really remember what sparked it, but maybe I watched like a HGTV <laughs> show or something at the time. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, I started in OA also. What high school did you go to? Mullen. Mullen. Okay. Yeah. I, I have heard about that school mainly because of the football coach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's some drama about that a few years back, if I remember. <laughs> I actually uh, graduated high school here in uh, Aurora in uh, 2006. In 2008, I started flipping houses, too. Ah, I see. I should have started. <laughs> <laughs> Just I, somehow you you um, decided to start it back then, but you did not. So you went on to school and you did 11 years in the auto industry. Mm -hmm. So when did you purchase your first deal? When did you apply this, this mindset of wanting to invest in real estate and making it real for you? Yeah, I wish it was a little bit more planned out. I, I bought my first single family house uh, at the time just for my family in 2015, right, right after we moved out to Austin. And at the time, my goal to transition out of my automotive career was investing, but it was, I was looking at, you know, stocks, the stock market. And at the time I was buying Volkswagen because I thought, you know, I knew Volkswagen. Anyways, long story short, the whole Dieselgate thing happened. Uh -huh. Yeah. So that taught me a very valuable lesson early on that if I'm going to do investing or if I'm going to, you know, build any sort of business, I need to have control. And so... At that same time, I had started listening to podcasts about investing and somehow wandered on to, to bigger pockets. And then from there, that just kind of like flipped the switch and we turned the, the, that single family we were living into into a rental, bought a duplex, uh, house hacked the duplex, bought another single family. And we were buying in Austin, so they were seeing pretty good appreciation. And uh, we started looking at, you know, how can we we capture this and move on to something bigger. And that's when we started looking at multifamily investments and kind of ballooned from there. So how many years from the, from the time you start buying your first deal until the point where you say, no, I need to go bigger. Yeah. It was sometime in around halfway through 2018, we were 
looking at selling one of the, the first house we bought actually and transitioning that into more property. And I kept thinking like, you know, I'm really enjoying this, but where can I, like, how can I get a better deal in Austin? And it kind of transitioned. Like I have to hit the ground, meet with people, like start looking at wholesalers. like trying to find the best deal I can in Austin to make that makes the most sense. And then I thought I'm going to put all this work into buying one or two deals a year of single family rentals. And that's when it kind of like flipped the switch. Like, why am I instead, like if I'm going to do one deal a year, why not try and do one large deal a year? Okay. So you decided to say, all right, I'm going to do one large deal a year. How did you research this, this new found niche that you wanted to get into? How did you get the education? Did you listen to podcasts or uh, did you actually go to different seminars, uh, networking events? Yeah. Well, I've been listening to, to podcasts and, and books and reading books pretty much since 2015 when I, when I started getting interested in real estate. So by then I had had a lot of knowledge and taken very little action. So uh, one of the podcasts I've been listening to was uh, this, uh, this group of guys. And I always found myself going back to, to their podcast when I was thinking about apartments. So I just actually reached out to them and uh, kind of joined up with like a mentorship group. And then, you know, from there, that's kind of how I started implementing that knowledge. And do you mind sharing that uh, that group of guys? That what's their podcast? Yeah, so Jake and Gino, the the Wheelbarrow Profits podcast. Awesome! I, I listened to uh, that group also. In fact, I've been listening to them for a few years before they even had that podcast. They were just you know sharing content here and there, and I just you know I remember uh, I was in the office listening to them a few a few years ago. Yeah, and you know it's it's been great seeing the journey going from, you know, just started that, that whole program with mentoring and now being able to coach so many successful students. Yeah. I mean, it's been transformational for me. I, I think the one thing that really helped me get my, change my mindset was reaching out and finding a mentor, whether you, you know, go through a group like I did or not. It, I think it's, you know, multifamily at least is a team sport and you need to find people who have done it to, to help you in my opinion, or at least, you know, do it together. I imagine you um, researched a bunch before you committed to Jack and Gino. What is it that you like about their program? A lot of it was they were, it might be because they were the first people I heard kind of talking about this and I had been listening to them for the longest, but also over the years I had reached out to, to Gino on multiple occasions, just over email, like asking a question, you know, not, part of the group, nothing like that. And he would, you know, immediately respond. And I just knew after looking at all the other groups, they all have, you know, something great to offer. But here I was not even a part of his group, just a guy who heard him on the internet, sending him emails and he would respond, which I thought was, I wanted to be, I wanted to surround myself with people like that. I want to have that, that personal touch. Cool. Cool. So you joined their program and you ultimately purchased your, your first deal. How long did it take you to do that? So I joined their program October of 2018 is when I started really looking at uh, multifamily. And wow, so less, less than a year now. Yeah, we closed on our, well, I closed on a 12 unit in July in Atlanta. Um, I was a small part of a group that came together to buy that. And then uh, my own deal out here in Austin, a 53 unit, we closed in, uh, August of 
August 1st. Oh, so you just closed it. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Yeah. So I, I know a lot of people in the apartment world, at least, they are interested in investing in uh, Texas. How did you or what did you do differently to be able to find that first deal and ultimately close on it? Sure. I don't know if it's anything I did differently. I've always heard Austin was a very competitive market, but unfortunately, with when I was still working full time, the, the value that I could bring was being the boots on the ground. So I was stuck with the market I, I'm in. Uh, like, I mean, I love Austin. It's a great market, but you know, it is very competitive. I don't think I did anything earth shattering or groundbreaking. I just went out and looked at a ton of deals. You know, we underwrote a ton, we toured a ton, made offers on a ton before we, we had one accepted. And on that first deal, did you do a syndication or you bought it with your own money or with someone else? Yeah. So the first deal, we did not syndicate. Through the process of looking for properties out in Austin and just kind of networking with everybody I could, uh, I met up with uh, my partner on these Austin deals uh, who was also looking to invest in Austin. and We just kind of kept it in-house, I guess you could say. Yeah, kept it in-house. So how did you meet your partner for that deal? Yeah, actually, uh, a while ago on Bigger Pockets. So when I decided that multifamily was where I was going to put my my focus, my effort, I just started reaching out to everybody on Bigger Pockets who was syndicated or owned apartments or had experience with it, and just offering for you know coffee or a phone call. And actually, uh, pretty much everybody replied. It's a very nice group of people on there usually. But that's how I met my partners through that. So that right there shows that you are doing something that different than than most people out there because on bigger pockets for, for the most part you just don't even think about reaching out to people you just post and hope that someone would reply to you but you went the active route you know you seek out knowledge and you seek out professionals who have done this for a long time to uh, soak up their knowledge and expand your network yeah i love i mean i love bigger pockets for the podcast, the, the forum, I think has gives a lot of people value and and the networking aspect, I think, is the greatest part. The one thing, I, at least for the multifamily side, I feel like sometimes asking a question to the general public on bigger pockets can be a bit confusing, especially if you don't really know. If you're looking for general advice because so many people from so many different backgrounds come at you. But as far as, you know, syncing up with people in your in your field and in your industry and then your niche within that industry, I think it's irreplaceable. That's definitely is a good place, a good forum for any of the newer investor, passive or active to go and, and start your investing journey there. Now, let's talk about your first apartment deals again. Besides, so you bought it with your own money and it's in Austin. You found your partner through Bigger Pockets. Walk me through the financing part, because I know for commercial properties, you have to have a few pieces. One of it is the key principle. Did you have the network to close the loan or how how did that happen? Yeah, through my partner. He has the, the net worth to close the loan. Okay, so your partner has the network. He's, he was willing to sign the loan. And you are the boot on the ground. Mm-hmm. Both of you put up the same amount of uh, down payment. No, it was uh, representative of our our portion. Okay, so 
I I would imagine he since he is signing on the loan, he would get a, a bigger piece. So, how did you even convince him to join in this deal with you, being that it's your first? Sure. Well, it helps that he's a multifamily investor that's been doing it for 15 plus years. So most of the stuff, the deals that I was showing to him, you know, it wasn't anything, anything new. It's all stuff that he was familiar with. As far as, you know, us coming together for our first deal, it, it kind of started with the initial phone call off, off bigger pockets. And then as I was continuing to look at deals in Austin, if I found something I thought might work based on what we had talked about, I would start sending his way. And then from there, it kind of evolved to us looking at deals together. So it wasn't like an overnight, like, hey, I have this deal, come sign on the loan for me. It was all relationship building and it took time. I mean, it took, I don't know, almost nine months of working together before we got a deal accepted. Definitely. So you mentioned earlier, you have been looking at a lot of deals and before you even go to him, you have to look at a deal and make sure that you think it's something that will work. Can you share some of your underwriting criteria, what you're looking for in a deal? Well, in Austin, because uh, everything I do is kind of Austin specific, we look for 20 to 100 units, B and C class. We look all over the hall, Austin MSA, but we really like assets that are, are closer to the core. So, and as far as our underwriting characteristics, I mean, it really depends on the location. Price per door can fluctuate across Austin crazily. Cap rate, you know, we usually want to be above a 5.5. Five. It's not always possible going in, but we also do value add deals. So sometimes there's a component of it where it's obviously not as as attractive as a stabilized deal. So, so can you explain a little bit on the on the value add deal? What do you typically look for to go in 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 a building? Yeah, I mean, we want to look for improvements that give us return. We try to avoid things like structural, electrical. Anything that you don't get rewarded for doing, but get punished for not doing, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. We want properties where there's at least a 10% difference between market rents and in-place rents. Okay. That we can achieve, you know, those those rents without, well, that we can achieve those rents without a huge lift. And if there is a huge lift, that we get a representative increase in value uh, through the increase in rents. So rent increasing is one that you look for. And um, another area that you look for, I, I would imagine, is finding ways to reduce your expenses or bring in a vendor for your, say, laundry incomes, that kind of deal. Sure. And now that we you know, we have our, our one deal closed, we have two more that are closing. A lot of people say that 20 to 60 unit range is kind of hard to manage because it's usually not enough for a full-time on-site manager. But not well, not enough to support the payroll. So one thing we look for now is to buy buildings very close to each other. So you kind of get those. Oh, okay, okay. So it's kind of like so. I've I've read this in uh, Joe Fairless's book. He also like to buy small. If you're gonna buy a small unit, buy them close together so you can group everything together in the back end, and then you can sell it and one like one big portfolio. Sure. It also helps with managing because then we can have one full-time manager and a full-time maintenance tech over 130 units versus 60 units and 70 units. Okay, got it, got it. So on that, on their buildings that you are trying to close now, they're they're fairly close to the first two that you purchased. Yeah. Okay, and you are still paying with your own cash. Yes. 
Oh, wow. Okay. I haven't met that many people who, who are able to do that yet. You're the first. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it worked out. We had, we were both uh, in a situation where we had to, um, 1031 some money. Okay. Oh, oh, you had to 1031 also. I, I was under assumption that when you sold your first property, you could avoid capital gain there, being that you lived there for a while. I had only lived there for a year and a half. Oh. So I, I, I didn't know that when I moved out. <laughs> I found that later come tax time, we were looking at selling it. So we had to... Uh, I see. Okay. So are you? is your plan is to um, kind of eventually roll out of all your single family home and put them into bigger units? Yes. Yeah. And moving forward, we're going to look at going after, well, maybe not larger at We'll probably stay away from the 50 to 20 and start looking at 50 to 150 in Austin and then syndicating those deals. Okay. So for now, your business plan going forward, do you foresee going out of Austin or do you still want to stick in that main market? Yeah, I like Austin. I think it's a strong market. We got pretty pretty good job growth coming in. I, there's a lot of things I like about it. Can you tell us a little bit about things that you like? Well, it's pretty like heavy tech. Obviously, we have the new Apple campus. We have Oracle. We have Google. We have Samsung. We have Dell. And more and more jobs being created. Big companies moving here. And it's you know the number one place to live three years in a row. The only bad thing about it is the traffic, but I think that's big cities everywhere now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but as far as why we like Austin is, I mean, its growth is exploding. You know, if we can get in at a, in a good area in the path of progress, which is where we're finding these these smaller deals, it just makes sense to us. Yeah, so not a, not a lot of people nowadays are looking for the smaller size deals. Everyone, you know, going at a hundred and above, hundred, two hundred doors is the minimum that that they want to uh, to buy. Meanwhile, you're coming in looking at the smaller size and you're scooping them up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it, it we just see value in it. I understand the on both sides of the coin. But it was also a, you know, what kind of pool do we want to play in? Do we want to if we go too small, then we're competing with everybody. If we go too large, we're competing with much bigger players. So, we like we like our size right now. So let's change topic a little bit. Going from single family home to your first apartment building, what changed in your mindset? Oh, man, so much. I mean, back when I was just doing single family rentals and and duplexes, you know, I like to tell people I was actively passive. You know, I didn't didn't hound the streets for the best deal. I wasn't knocking down doors. I wasn't sending letters. I was working, saving up enough to have a down payment and then looking for a little bit and and then buying. And then another nine months would go by and I would save up to buy. And, you know, it's very slow, not a lot of effort put into it, but enjoyable. I just kind of thought I could do it all by myself. And so when I wanted to start looking at larger units, my mindset was, I don't need anybody's help. I can do this all on my own. And I think once I realized that you can go further together and faster. Yeah, it was just a complete mind, mind, mind shift. And then also just going out, you know, before I was never attending meetups, networking, going to events, taking people out for coffee. And that kind of, you know, changed my perception as well. There's so many wonderful people in this industry, in this market, in this area, and you meet some pretty incredible people. But also, you know, you, 
you build members of your team that you just can't do. You know, everybody talks about team building, but a lot of that is just meeting everybody you can. And that was, I guess, the big mind shift change because I was very anti-partnership, anti-joining up with people, anti-joining a mentorship group. I mean, that was a huge leap for me as well. But, but why, why is that? Why did you uh, not like joining a mentorship program? I have kind of the, I guess as somebody would call it, the IMA mentality where it's like, I'm going to do everything. Okay. And after, especially after joining bigger pockets and going on the forums, like they are very, I don't want to say everybody is, but most of them are very anti mentor, anti coach. I mean, I haven't experienced every mentor or coach, so there could be very good reasons behind that. But as far as in uh, where I was, you know, I knew when I became a technician, I had a mentor and it helped me, you know, grow as a technician. So I knew if I was going to do this full time, I should probably look into getting a mentor. But I'd been listening to podcasts and reading forum posts for years that were like, oh, you can find all that information for free. And you can, you can find it for free, but it's not going to be curated. It's not going to have actionable content with it. And it's also going to be, you know, well, I guess that goes back to the curated part. It's going to be covered by 17 different people's opinions, most of them unqualified for what you're asking. Right. And, and I see that it's like me not knowing how to fix a car go online, go on YouTube, different forums to find out how to fix one thing in a car. Whereas I can just go to a shop and just say, here you go, do it for me or teach me how to do this. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, great. Great analogy. So then besides the mindset shift, have you had any other change in your habit at all? Well, I think the mindset change really did change my habits. So, you know, I set daily goals for reaching out to people. Um, How many people do you need to reach out daily? Well, it's kind of slowed down, I guess I should say now that we have three deals closing because that takes up a lot of time. But for a while it was, I was reaching out to three people a day. On on bigger pockets or, or anywhere? On bigger pockets, yeah. Okay. Or anywhere, anywhere. At first it was bigger pockets. And then as I went to more events, you know, it kind of went that way and meetup groups and But really, I mean, everything, at least that I've noticed Mm -hmm. in in multifamily so far, most of it is repetition uh, and just putting in the work. So I guess habit-wise, it's just treating it like a business, putting in the work each day, even when you don't feel like it, and then following a, a framework that works. So what would you say is a single habit that actually gave you 80% of your results up until now? Man, that's a tough one. I would say the the one thing I've changed that's given me the most benefit is is networking. If if I had to give anybody any advice, it would be go out and attend as many meetups as you can. Uh, most of them are free. If that's a concern, reach out to people. Do you have any advice for people who have never attended meetup or go to any networking events on how to or their approach or how to work the room when when they get there? Sure. Well, if you're like me, I was a huge introvert. So going to a meetup was terrifying. Before I before I did that, I joined Toastmasters. So if you're scared of like public speaking or anything, join a group like Toastmasters. I, I still go. It's fantastic. As far as working the room, I mean, just I mean, everybody's there for the exact same reason as you are to meet people. So it's just walk up to people and just start introducing yourself and asking about them. You know, that's usually why you go to networking events is to network. So it's not out of the blue to go up and introduce yourself to somebody and 
ask them what they do or how they got there, who they are. Okay. Then how about online? When you reach out to people on Bigger Pocket, what do you usually say? I usually, you know, introduce myself and I say like, I'm an apartment investor in Austin, Texas, looking to surround myself with like-minded individuals. Uh, would you ever be interested in connecting, you know, more over if they're local, I usually ask if connect more over coffee or if they're not, you know, a phone call. Okay. So mindset change, habit change, and let's say that your experience now, right? Is there anything that you wish you would have known before you started this, this whole journey? One thing you wish that you had known when you started out? Yeah, that it's possible for me to do it. You know, I always especially when I started listening to podcasts, you hear about these people who, you know, are really making it happen. And I always, you always tell yourself, like, even subconsciously, at least I did, like, oh, well, they made it happen, but I couldn't do that. And I think once I realized, like, yeah, you actually can do that, it was a huge change. So the one thing I would tell myself is, or wish I knew, was uh, that it is possible. You just got to, you put in the work, have the guts to go out there and do it and make it happen. Yeah, it's kind of like, I think Napoleon Hill said that if you can see it, dream it, you can achieve it. Yeah, exactly. So is that the model that you go by? Uh, I wish I wish I could say 100% yes. I'm getting there. I'm starting to push myself more and more out of my comfort zone into things that I thought weren't possible. So I don't know if I'm 100% broken of it, but we're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> well, always trying to work on something new. And, yes. I, and I guess that's... That's it. Now, do you have a morning routine by chance? I don't. I've been trying to implement the miracle morning. I read that a long time ago. And now that I've stepped away from what I was doing before to focus on real estate full time, I'm trying to re-implement that. But right now I'm really excited because my morning routine now is waking up and taking my kids to school, which before <laughs> okay, I never to do. So I'm pretty happy with it right now. <laughs> nothing, nothing can beat that. Yeah. Now, with, with your life right now, with your career right now, what are you most curious about at this point? I want to see, I mean, what I'm most curious about is how big we can grow this and what we can, you know, make unique about our our multifamily investment business, how we can differentiate ourselves, how we can help the most people uh, and not just be another face in the crowd. I'm interested to see, you know, where we can take this. What's your business plan to to make this happen? Well, right now, uh, the biggest thing on our priorities is getting these deals closed and stabilized. And then from there, really reaching out to more and more people and seeing what we can do to go after more deals or larger deals and what how we can structure that either for ourselves or for our investors to really make that attractive. And then just building that, that investor base and, and continuing to focus in on strong markets and and you know niche areas that maybe are being overlooked well cool man now so you've been doing this for a while have you run into or stumbled into any hurdle that um really gave you a, a, a huge lessons like any any failure that that you ran into or appeared to be a failure yeah i i mean Pretty early on, we already talked about Volkswagen, so that really taught me I want to be any investment I'm in, I want to have control. That was a big life lesson. And then as far as real estate, we got pretty lucky with our first couple of properties we acquired. The duplex, 
I learned inherited tenants can be awful, even in landlord friendly markets like Texas. I would, I don't know really what you can do about that on the front end, except only buy vacant properties, but that's, that's not always possible. Just be careful with your inherited tenants. Well, I mean, in the, mar- in the apartment market, I cannot imagine you don't want to, you know, inherit any tenants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's completely a different animal. If you're in a house hack and duplex, maybe see if you can I don't know, get, get them empty. But essentially when we bought our duplex, the one tenant just destroyed the place. I guess they were very upset and then just left town. So that was kind of a life lesson, but I guess I would say through managing my own properties, I realized one thing which kind of led me to to multifamilies, I don't want to manage the day-to-day, like the tenant relationship. Maybe not the tenant relationship. I don't want to be a property manager. Let me put it that way. Yeah, you want to be an asset manager. Yes. You manage the manager. Yes. I realized very early on that that is not one of my skill sets, nor one that I'm extremely interested in developing. So I had to look at it at an investment area where I could utilize that. Okay. So what are you, what do you enjoy most about what, besides, you know, managing the manager, what are you good at? I mean, I love acquisitions. That's kind of the the sexy side of real estate. I feel like, you know, I do enjoy asset management. I enjoy, you know, seeing how we can push these properties to their full potential, um, overseeing renovations, uh, all that. I love seeing the before and after and being involved in that process. I think that's really unique. Yeah, definitely. and turn it into something beautiful. Yeah, it's same here. I mean, I used to fix and flip and the feeling that you see the before and the after, it's just like nothing can compare to it. Yeah. <laughs> the photo is, is one thing, but being there and, yeah. you know, visualize back, oh, shoot, this house used to be a dump. Look at it now. <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine it could be the same for, for apartment when you turn something like in the D-class building into a, a C C plus. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to, to see your, you know, what you envision for this property come to life. You know, that's a, that's a fun process. Do you like to buy um, B and C class buildings or do you care about some lower one? From no, we, we primarily focus on B and C class. B and C. Yeah. Okay. How do you, source your your deals currently every deal we've gotten has been brought to us uh, by a broker as far as apartment deals and that's a lot of that was because of time you know i hear a lot of people chase you know even at this scale off market truly off market going directly to owners i've found much more success building those broker relationships i think if they more than deserve their fee if they can bring you a good deal, especially if before it's listed. And it was also a time constraint. But chasing after directly to owners requires time. And while I was working full time, I had to leverage pretty much everything I could, especially my time. So I, I focus on building relationships with the people who constantly focus on building relationships with the owners in the market. So I guess that was a long answer to we get all of our deals so far through brokers. Mm-hmm. Can you share a little bit more about how you build a relationship with a broker, especially for someone who listening might be new to the game? Sure. I've heard a ton of strategies. All I can say is the one that's worked for me, but not that the others won't. 
if I'm meeting a, you know, a broker for the first time, I have a kind of like a credibility book of who I am, what I look for, who the partners on my team are that I send usually after or before a call. And they're busy people. They don't really want to be, uh, not that they're not nice people, but most of them are focused on getting a deal closed because that's how they feed their family. So if you can show them that you know what you're looking for, you know what you're asking for, and you have the competency to close I think you've checked a lot of the boxes. You just don't want to raise any red flags, especially on your, you know, your first couple of conversations. So what would be a, a red flag? I think being very unclear about what you're looking for. Like if they, if you are calling a broker and they ask you, what are you looking for? And you say a good deal in Austin or something <laughs> like that, you know, like, you know, so is everybody. So how, how can you be, how can you stand out and how can you be specific? So we try to focus in on age, location, size, class, and then stick to those as well. You know, they might send you stuff that's outside of that. And then the best thing you can do is give them positive feedback on why that doesn't work or why it does work and what they want to sell as much as you want to buy. They just want to make sure that you are the person that can actually buy and not just tie up a property for 30 days. 30 days. So talk about that a little bit. What's the, what's the timeline in, in um, the Austin market from the time you, get an accepted LOI to the time your money go hard and your financing, your inspection and all that. Yeah. So, you know, just like with everything in real estate, it's totally negotiable. We typically do 60 day closings. We'll probably bake in one or two extensions if we need to into the contract where we've been flexible in the past is doing our due diligence period before money goes hard. So typically we ask for 30 days. Okay. One, you know, if we're going to negotiate and we don't, when we can't go any more aggressive on price, maybe we do a higher deposit. Maybe we do a shorter due diligence period. I haven't done a deal where money has gone hard day one. I don't think I could. That just makes my stomach upset thinking about it. <laughs> just because so many things can go wrong that you know neither you nor the seller know. But as far as the closing timeline, and that's pretty much it. 60, 60 days. We usually ask for one or two 15 day extensions if required by the lender. Mm -hmm. happen. But yeah, that's why I said, you know, they don't want to have a property for 30 days because I feel like the typical ask is a 30 day due diligence period. So they don't want to tie up a property and then have somebody back out 30 days in that just, you know, remarket it all over again. Mm -hmm. Now, in, in terms of your financing, once again, are you looking for long term debt or conventional debt, institutional yeah. Um, our first deal, we did agency debt. It was a, a Freddie loan. Okay. We project our whole times between five to seven years right now, at least in Austin. So we like debt that matches up with that. If we're doing a, a heavy value add, we might look for something with a flexible prepay. Okay. But we're pretty conservative when it comes to leverage. We're not trying to get very high LTVs. We're fine with, you know, 70, 75 and attractive rates longer terms, you know, five to seven year terms, but with a flexible prepay kind of meets up with our strategy. Does that, I imagine right now with everyone talking about the uh, recessions coming up, does that work out with your business plan also to stress test these deals when you're coming in? Yeah. And that's part of the reason we don't try and go super aggressive on our debt just because of where we are at in the game. Like if we can lock in a low rate for a long amount of time at conservative leverage, that seems pretty attractive to us. And it still makes the deal work. I wouldn't want to 
I mean, I know people still are. And I'm, I'm not speaking from a position of education or uh, authority on this, but I wouldn't want to be in like bridge debt or anything with uh, a floating rates or short terms where you have to in two to three years or mm-hmm. two years or 18 months transition to a different product. Unless you can, I guess, buy additional years. I mean, the debt world, there's a foot for every shoe. You're just finding the right one. Yeah. Find, find whatever <laughs> find whatever works for you. Yeah, what fits for, for you, the deal, and I guess your temperament. I'm a little bit less or more risk averse, I think, than maybe some people. Okay. So, Nick, is there anything else that you want to share with a new investor who were in your shoes maybe in 2015 when you first started? I mean, you hear all the – everybody, almost everybody says, learn your market, learn your market, learn your market. I think that's really important. That would be the first thing I would tell anybody is learn your market, meet as many people as you can in your market, and then you know believe it's possible. You can wait on the sidelines for something to happen, but you'll probably be waiting a very long time. So go out there, take action. I guess that's the best thing I can say is education is great, but you need to actually take action. So go out there and, and do things. Take but, steps. Yeah. Education without action is the most expensive hobby you can have. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> that's really accurate. Yeah. Well, Nate, thank you so much, man. You have been awesome throughout this podcast episode. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, record this episode with me. And I'm sure the audience learned a tons of value from you. Well, thanks. I was I was really happy to be here. So thanks for having me. Loved the episode of the Real Estate Lab podcast? Share the show with all your friends. Subscribe and give the show a five stars rating on iTunes. Until next time, have an awesome work week.